Welcome to the Andy Griffin Show, the number one talk show in St. George, starring Andy Griffin. Yeah, that's me. Thanks for tuning in. Nine minutes after 9 a.m. I hope I didn't give the impression yesterday I was going to quit my job. I just said I'd have some decisions to make if some of the censorship that seems to be cropping up around the country were to reach me. Uh, we'll have more on that a little bit later on in the program, uh, including a, a pretty cool little opening minute by Ben Shapiro during his show yesterday. I actually uh, pulled the audio from that and want to play that for you. Just kind of give you a, a, a little sample of what he had to say about censorship. Really interesting stuff. Uh, well, like I said, we'll uh, talk about that a little bit later on in the show. Had a guest scheduled for today, and uh, the guest uh, yesterday said they were under the weather, maybe even COVID-19, didn't feel like they could come on the radio today. And so uh, I was scrambling yesterday, and fortunately, uh, I got an email uh, from someone, uh, from a, guy by, a guy by the name of Dan Noble, who uh, represents uh, Joe Whitaker. Joe Whitaker uh, had some time for us today to talk on our program. Joe, how are you doing? I'm doing very good. Thank you, Andy. Thank you for coming on the program today. Now, Joe is a, uh, a Vietnam War veteran and an author. The book he wrote is called The Day Before I Died. And uh, this is a pretty heavy topic, Joe. And, you know, we don't want to bring anybody down or anything like that, but it's certainly something that needs to be talked about. Absolutely. Absolutely. The focus of the book is suicide. And, and yes, it is a, a heavy topic. But if if we want to not be too heavy, let me tell you, I survived that whole um, issue. I survived the return from Vietnam. And I have a very, very, very wonderful life today. So it's, it has a happy ending. With Vietnam, it was, uh, first of all, I was I was a little kid when Vietnam was going on. I, I really had no concept of what was happening in our country. Uh, history books have told us that uh, a lot of Vietnam veterans came home and they were less than welcome at home. Was, was that kind of the experience you had when you got back from Vietnam? 100%, Andy, 100%. They called us uh, baby killers. They spit on us. I could not go out in public wearing my uniform. Um, it was uh, 30 years before anybody ever said thank you for your service. Wow, that's 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 hard to believe. Considering it's not like you went there by choice and were were there fighting a war that really didn't have a lot to do with America by choice. You were there because they needed you. Yes, yes. So, yes. Uh, were were you drafted then, or did you join the army? How, how did that work for you? I joined. I volunteered. I was not drafted. Mm-hmm. I volunteered to serve my country. And what what was? While it was going on, what was the kind of the attitude before we had before we went over there as a nation to fight? What was the attitude of the country? Did you were you doing it because hey, I'm an American, I'm proud of America, and I want to help out? Okay, Andy, that's two. I'm going to answer that two different ways. Number one, my attitude was it's my country, I'm going to fight for it. Yeah. Uh, my administration signed us up for this, and we need to support that. Um, but number two, our country did not agree. We were split right down the middle. Um, I In the book, I talk about a divide in our country equal to what happened during the Civil War. Um, if you remember the history book, since you said you were a young person at the time, our history books talk about a group called the SDF, Students for a Democratic Society, mm-hmm. um, revolting against the war, protesting, uh, marching, doing lots of things, including at Kent State University where later on students were shot as a result of the prote- their protest, but it was much later. Uh, my brother 
was a leader in the movement, the SDS movement, the student. It was literally brother against brother in wow. my case. Wow. Yeah. I was, when I um, graduated from uh, flight school and got my wings, my first assignment was back in the area where I went to college where my brother was. So and my job was to recruit others to join my program, to join the program I was in. It was literally on one side of the table trying to recruit, and my brother was on the other side of the table chanting and blocking and demonstrating and making it very, very difficult um, to, to accomplish that task. So it was literally brother against brother. Was your relationship with your brother at that point fractured? I, I, is it something that you were able to, over time, repair? Um, we never. The relationship was never fractured. We stayed close. Hmm. on a brotherly level, but philosophically, we could not have been farther apart. Wow. Now, do you see, and we'll, we'll get to your experience there and your experience after, but I wanted to ask you, do you see some of what was happening then, now, with kind of the political divide we're seeing in our country right now? Yes. Yes. There's a, there's a very, very strong similarity, and I am heartbroken to see it again. Mm-hmm. It is where, where, and we won't take sides, I'll just say where misinformation is being um, delivered and people are reacting to it and nobody really knows the truth. And that's what happened back in uh, the Vietnam era. We were told why we were going to war. We were told why we were over there. And that may or may not have been true. So you know what I'm saying? It's uh, one side believes yeah. they're, they're, they're 100% right, and the other side says, oh, no, 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 you're not. Uh, it, it's very, very similar. And then to see the uh, recent march on the Capitol was uh, heartbreaking, absolutely heartbreaking. Um, I fought for our democracy. I fought for our freedoms. And to see that happening was just uh, an atrocity. Yeah. So, Absolutely. I agree. I agree with you there for sure. Um, okay. Well, we'll talk about maybe how it, it was repaired after the Vietnam War, but let's talk about your personal experience now. Tell us about going to Vietnam. What, what was going through your mind and what was going, well, what did you go through? Um, when you go over there, when you go to a strange place or go to war like that, you have no idea what's going to happen. Sure. So there's not a lot of, um, this is what I'm going to face or this years or that sort of thing. The more tragic part of this was the coming home. Once there, what you experience changes you completely. You are altered physically, mentally, and emotionally. You are not the same person when you return home. And we come home as changed people, and everyone around us did not change and did does not understand. Right. And this, and this is not a blame game. There's no way anybody can understand. A, they didn't experience it, and B, I didn't talk about it. I was silent for almost 40 years. I never talked about Vietnam for almost 40 years. And I consider that a tragic mistake on my part. But um, why, so, why, why do you think that was, Joe? Why, why did you not uh, talk? Because we saw some terrible, terrible things over there. And I can give you an example if you'd like that, Andy. But we saw terrible, terrible things over there. And um, it changed how we viewed the world and how we viewed those incidents and those responses or reactions to those incidents. And if I told you that, Andy, if I said, oh, this is what I think now, this is what I believe, and it's okay, 
then what I do is I become your monster. And Andy, I don't want to be your monster. I am not going to tell you. Mm. Mm. I appreciate. I, I appreciate that. Um, okay, so you went. You had this experience, and obviously, uh, like you said, a, a life-altering experience, and not for the better necessarily. Uh, and then you come home, and you're not. You're not welcomed home. You're not appreciated. Uh, you did the best you could. You came home, and, and people hated you just for simply having done what you did. Yes, yes. Whether you were part of atrocities or not part of atrocities, they, they just hated you because you were part of it. And um, so you come home. You're hated. You're unaccepted. You're not welcome back into society as you expected to be. Many of us expected to be welcomed home with open arms, and that's not what happened. And number two, because of the alteration in the, like I say, physical, mental, and emotional being that we are, um, I was completely lost. Where, where do I go from here? How do I move forward? What's the next step? Where do I go? Many of families, like if you're married, and I was married, um, expect you're just going to come home, fit back fit right back in, pick up your chores and your duties like you had before you left and move on. It didn't work. It didn't work. That does not work. Um, it's at the starting over point. We cannot move forward as if nothing happened. We cannot move forward with the same plan we had before. We must start over and rebuild and, and reconstruct the life that we can live with now as different people. I look at photographs of me before I left, and I don't even recognize that person, Andy. Hmm. I don't even recognize that person. What? Uh, you said you can't pick up where you left off and, and that you changed so much. What, what is the trigger? What, what makes it so you can't reintegrate yourself into who you were before? I know you're different, but what makes it so you can't at least try to get back there? Um. Primarily because our belief systems are, are totally different. For uh, instance, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, when I left, Andy, I was an innocent Irish Catholic boy from New England. I was one of ten children. A happy, idyllic life. Reality hit me over the head like a two-by-four. Yeah. It, it, it's a completely different world. Mm. And, and the, the barrier to moving forward or, or reintegrating into a life is that you can't cross the divide. I can't tell you what the differences are. I can't tell you uh, who and what I've become as a result of the war. Again, because I don't want to be the bad guy. I don't want to be the person you look at. You're already looking at me badly like I'm a monster. Right. Uh, a baby. Yeah, baby. Killer. I'm not going to make it worse. So, you know, I, I, if you had... Go ahead. I'm sorry, Ian. If you had issues before you left, and many of us did, you know, there are normal life issues um, it makes it twice as bad so and I did have issues so and that's in the book but um, it, it's very very difficult and, and that's why that's why 20 to 22 servicemen and women kill themselves every day Wow 20 wow. to 22 yeah there's no way forward and there's no reintegration back into society. I said in the book that I felt safer in a combat zone than I did on Main Street, USA, when I came home. Hmm. My, and, uh, I have a nephew, Joe, who, uh, who served in Iraq and Afghanistan and saw, I don't know what atrocities you saw, but I know he saw some pretty terrible things, including, you know, people right next to him, uh, his, his, his uh, fellow soldiers get blown away. And uh, he, 
honest truth is he's he struggles. Uh, he he went when he went. He had a couple of kids. He had a wife and a couple of kids, and uh, honestly, try to get him to talk about it, and he couldn't. It, it, it's it's just like you're describing. There was no way for him to relate to us what he did. He didn't want to. He didn't want to put that on us. Yeah. Oh, I totally understand. I totally understand. In in Vietnam, there were both that plus atrocities um, that happened against the enemy. And I don't know if you remember, and this the one I was going to give you, the example I was going to give you was the massacre of My Lai. Yeah. There was a, vil- there was a village called My Lai, and uh, U.S. troops went into the village and killed hundreds of men, women, and children. And uh, I was not there. Don't get me wrong. I just use that as an example. But sure. killed hundreds of men, women, and children. And um, how, if you asked me what I thought about that and how I viewed that, it would be so totally different than how you right this minute would view it or how my parents or my wife or, or my, the people in my life would view it, would have viewed it back then. And automatically they made a judgment. Oh, they were baby killers. They killed children, you know, and they blamed the U.S. troops. Yeah. Without understanding what happened. So. Yeah, and... and, and- I, again, no judgment here. Honestly, I've read enough about that to know that there were some pretty extreme, extenuating circumstances. But you know, if you go to a, the average person who hasn't gone to war, and you say, "Well, they killed babies and, and women," you say, "Oh, well, that, that must have been a psychopath that that you know that that ordered that to happen, or it must have been a psychopath that was pulling the trigger on those." Uh, you're right. There's no way we can understand that. Okay, and I assure you it wasn't. In, in most cases, it's not a psychopath, let me tell you that. Yeah. And, and I'll, I'll tell you what, you want to balance the scale a little bit. We used to take a bus. I was at Da Nang Air Force Base. Take a bus from uh, Da Nang Air Force Base into town, into the town of Da Nang, to have a little R&R, get some uh, dinner, go to a restaurant. We had to put screens on the windows of the bus because people were throwing grenades into the bus trying to, uh, you know, destroy the bus and the people inside. And so to protect ourselves, we had to do that. And uh, when you saw them throw it, you did not know whether it was a man or woman or a child. Hmm. What you saw was the enemy. Yeah, yeah. And when we go go into a restaurant, we would sit um, with our back to the wall facing the door and had our exit strategy planned so that when somebody walked by and threw a grenade in the restaurant, we could get out of there as quickly as possible, and we could not tell if those people were adults or children. So when I say to you, we lose the distinction between men, women, and children, it's just the enemy. Do you understand that? It's just the enemy. And and I've never ventured that far in an interview like this, Andy, so I just stepped out there a little bit, but, but it's the enemy. Nobody killed men, women, and children. They killed the enemy. People who, who were harming troops, harming us, harming me. That's, that's the hard part. We're speaking with Joe Whitaker, a Vietnam War veteran who wrote the book, The Day Before I Die. Now, uh, one of the real tragedies uh, right now in our world is, the, is suicide. Uh, it happens in young people. It actually is quite common in middle-aged men uh, and certainly... Uh, very much so among our first responders, uh, policemen in particular, and veterans of wars. Uh, Joe, I would ask you this. uh, Is man meant to be in war? It seems like to me everyone that I know that has participated in warlike activities, uh, 
they're they're kind of messed up. I mean, it, it messes with your head maybe for the rest of your life, I guess. Yes. <laughs> yes. I'm, I'm laughing at messed up. Uh, if you if you know that I was silent for 40 years, I'd call that messed up. Yeah. If, if, if you don't uh, ever, ever, ever share your experience with anybody, and when I came back, I never saw another Vietnam veteran. I never, ever experienced a conversation or uh, an empathetic pat on the back of somebody who knew after I came back. It was 40 years later, and I told you about going into a restaurant in Da Nang and putting our back to the wall. Mm-hmm. To this day, to this day, and I came home in 1971. To the, and it's 2021, so count those years. Fifty bucks, uh, yeah. Fifty years later, I still sit in a restaurant with my back to the wall. And in 2012, I walked into a restaurant with my granddaughter, and she sat in the chair that was had the back to the wall. And I said, uh, hey, Jessica, Grandpa's got to sit there. And she said, why? And she had her own version of why, so you could be Mr. Social and see who comes in. <laughs> and I said, no. I said, no, honey. So I can see if somebody throws a grenade in the front door and we can get out of here. Wow. And I had never, Andy, I had never said that. Fifty years later, I say that. You should have seen the look on my 20-year-old granddaughter's face. She said, what? I couldn't believe it. And I said, sorry. Yeah, she, I said, sorry, honey, that's a, that's a holdover from the war, and um, I don't really mean that. It's just a habit I do, I have. And uh, she says, Grandpa, you never talk about the war. Why don't you talk? I started talking that day, telling her my experiences, and I began writing the book. It took me four years to write. I didn't start writing the book right away. Um, that idea came to me a little bit later, but it took four years to write the book. It took four years to break down the walls of silence. Hmm. And it took a 20-year-old granddaughter to say, tell me. And I want to tell you one of the most exciting experiences. It was a very, very difficult book to write. It was very, very hard to open up that much. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and uh, in the process of writing the book, we have another issue. My daughter passed away. And uh, so we had another tragedy that I had to deal with. But in writing the book about the war and those experiences, what happened was I started remembering a positive thing. I started remembering the birth of my children. I started remembering um, my wife and I going on uh, some vacations and seeing beautiful places and beautiful spots. Before that, if you talked about um, um, a beautiful field of flowers, the only thing I saw was the mine planted at the base of those flowers. Uh, If you talked about cute little children trying to sell you candy or, or gum or flowers and you taking little photos, taking selfies with the children, not selfies back then, but pictures uh, with the little children. I didn't. I saw people who threw hand grenades in buses and restaurants. Uh, it was not a comfortable experience, and it was not. A, I never had those positive memories. But as soon as I opened the door, uh, I started to see some of those. I started to feel some of the joy and happiness that I should have felt all along and, and missed out on, missed out on because of the war. Can, can you talk a little bit about now you're, you're getting back to society? You said it was impossible to pick up your life where it left off, but maybe if you'll talk a little bit about how you did start to get back to, I don't know, is normal the right word? <laughs> well, first of all, Andy, I don't know if I ever call myself normal, but that's all right. <laughs> uh, let me tell you what my solution was. In my isolation and in my silence, and by the way, silence is the biggest enemy of all here, but in my silence and in my isolation, 
I, the solution I thought was appropriate was to drink. Mm. And so I began drinking. I began drinking. I drank very heavy. I drank every single day. I drank to excess. I drank to unconsciousness. Um, it was a, 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 it was a problem. And uh, and I drank before, but now it had escalated to a point where it was um, tragic. Uh, it was very very uh, inappropriate. And so. Um, and, and just to give you an example of how bad that was, here I am, lost, no way forward, and I'm drinking alcohol, which you know, Andy, is a depressant. Yeah. yeah. So now we've complicated the situation completely. And my solution was to find a 12-step program that put me back on the right path. Oh, that's good. That's awesome. Um, because I could... I could go to that program and I could say, I don't know who I am. I don't know what I am. I don't know. I don't know the next step forward. And um, they, the people in that program helped me make those steps. So, Joe, I, I need to get a commercial break in. If it's okay with you, I'd like to have you stay on a little bit longer and you can finish telling your story to us and talk about the book a little bit. Is that okay? I'll stay right here. All right. Hang in there. Welcome back to the program. This is the Andy Griffin Show on KDXU. Thank you for tuning in today. My guest today is Joe Whitaker. Joe is the author of the book, The Day Before I Died. He's a Vietnam War veteran and uh, a guy who really had to deal with so many emotions and feelings. You know, Joe, when people, when, when veterans came back from World War II, they were heroes. When they came back from Korea, they were heroes. You fast forward about seven, 18, 19 years and our soldiers are coming back from Vietnam, and that hero status is, is gone. Yes, 100%. What do you 100%. think? 100%. What do you think changed in the nation? I, I mean, you know, our guys go fight a war for us across the seas. They come home almost superhero-like, and then all of a sudden they're not anymore. Was it, was it just the 60s peace movement or what? Um, well, it was definitely the 60s peace movement, but there was also a big divide on, on the um, philosophical beliefs about the war. Many people in the U.S. thought it was 100% wrong for us to go to um, Southeast Asia and fight that war, that it was not our war, that we should not be there. Um, the, the touted reason for being there was to stop the spread of communism in that uh, area, and uh, many people believe that was not true. So we divided our nation based on that uh, philosophical difference, like we see some of that today. So, okay. So, so you and come that, home, Joe. You come home. You're not a hero, like maybe you thought you might be. Uh, you you said you were philosophically, emotionally, physically changed. You weren't the same person that that you were. And and then you're supposed to pick up life like it was, like nothing happened. I imagine that was darn near impossible. It was absolutely impossible. Um, I walked in, I give you an example. It was um, evident with my own family, my wife and children. But I walked into my parents' home, and my father sitting in the same chair with the newspaper in front of his face, my mother sitting in front of the TV watching the uh, game shows, and it was like a, a shock. <laughs> Nothing changed. Nothing changed. How could I be so different and so radically out of place? I felt like the out-of-place um, wrong thing in that picture. You know what I mean? It was like, oh, my God. Were, were you angry? Um, yes. Yes. Yeah, you have to be a little angry at that. Um, 
And a, a lot of the anger was focused on because I'm lost. What do I do? Mm-hmm. What, what do I do? Do I go in and tell him to put the paper down? Do I tell him to change? Do I tell him to accommodate me? Um, how do I tell him? It, it's frustration and anger uh, all mixed. Um, depression was, a, for me, was a, and I'm not a clinician. I want to make real clear I'm not a clinician. I'm not offering um, psychological help or that sort of thing. I'm sharing my experience, strength, and hope as a result of participating in the Vietnam War and the resultant effects on me. But um, what do you do? Do you say, okay, you guys got to tend to me. You've got to change to accommodate me. Um, to do that, I've got to tell you my secrets, and I'm not going to do that. I mean, you're completely lost. There's no way forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we need a reintegration period. A lot of the programs today that are supporting and helping uh, veterans, many of them Vietnam veterans, are veteran-to-veteran. There's one called uh, Warriors in Warm Waters where they go fly fishing and the veterans talk to each other and, and share their experience, strength, and hope and learn from each other and, and get to say to each other, it's okay. It's okay. We're going to survive this. Uh, another one is here in uh, north of San Diego works with horses and uh, in, in teaching, uh, learning how to handle horses, ride horses, take care of horses. They talk to each other. And that's what we need is we need to... Be, um, be able to talk to people who are empathetic and understand. If I had said to you, okay, here's my experience, and you said, oh, I see. No, you don't. Mm-mm. You couldn't. You know yeah. what I mean? You couldn't. Yeah. And, and it's not, that's not a blame or a judgment call. You just couldn't. Um, that's the hard part, too. When I say that, it sometimes feels like I'm saying you're the bad guy. Well, you're not. You're not. And it's, nobody is. Neither, it, were, neither were my parents or my wife. It's impossible to, uh, to to know that. You know, I, I have a friend who lost a, a, a child to an accident. And, uh, you know, I think I even said once, I understand. And, and they looked at me like I was crazy because I haven't lost a child. So obviously I can't understand what it is they're going through. Right. So, so I know exactly what I know what you're saying. I don't understand, but I know what you're saying. Uh, talk to me now about about suicide, about Kind of when you started to arrive at the idea that it just wasn't worth it anymore, Joe? Well, it was uh, most of the 70s. Like, in moment 71, so between 71 and, say, 78, 77, 78, uh, it became almost a daily thought. I, I told you I did not um, have a way forward. I did not know who I was. I did not know where to go from here. I would wake up every single night and walk the house to make sure that all the windows and doors were locked. I felt very unsafe, and um, I saw no way forward, so I thought the only answer was the way out. And, uh, and I contemplated suicide daily, and I became more quiet, more isolated. Uh, and I don't want to say quiet. We have quiet people, and quiet is okay. I became silent. I became withdrawn, isolated, not communicating on any level, and uh, got into a terrible, terrible place. Now, you thought about this for years. What was holding you back to, to actually try it? I, I mean, was there a belief in God, or, or what, what was ultimately keeping you from actually doing it? Um, I think it was my family. Hmm. I have a very, very strong family, and I have... Uh, at the time, I had three children and uh, a wife, and all of them very loving people, all of them very supportive. If they could have helped, they would have. I think I knew that. I think I knew deep down that um, 
that was not the right answer, that I had to find a different answer. I couldn't find it on my own. I had to seek help, and eventually I did, uh, and I got to spend wonderful, wonderful years with those people, so uh, it was well worth it, but it was extraordinarily difficult. And we're afraid to reach out for help, by the way. Um, if I tell you I need help, then I'm weak. Well, I'm, I'm the combat veteran. I'm the soldier. I'm the strong one. I can't say to you I'm weak. I need help. Right. And it's not weak. It's not weakness. It's a, it takes strength to say help me. It takes strength to reach out and say, where do I go from here? Do you have any experience? And it's just learning from others. Not. I don't want to put it in a therapeutic uh, venue. It's it's learning from each other. So. What. Uh, what? What is the ultimate moment that leads to the ultimate message from your book? And by the way, the book, folks, is called The Day Before I Died with Joe Whitaker. Go ahead, Joe. And, yeah, there's lots of excerpts from the book on the website, jfwhitaker.com, um, that you can go to and see. And it talks about things like depression and silence and uh, things that might be helpful. Um, I'm sorry, Andy, ask me a question again. Just maybe what... What was the uh, maybe the, the central message that you're trying to put across in your book, and what was the central uh, moment that that the book kind of focuses on? Okay, the, the book focuses on a, a chapter, probably three quarters of the way through, that says, "But I didn't do it. I didn't commit suicide. Uh, the day before I died, I found my solution. I found a way out of the darkness, and that's the central theme. There is a solution. There is hope." There is a path out of the darkness for you, for anybody in the darkness. I told you 20 to 22 servicemen and women are killing themselves every day. Every 40 seconds, there's a suicide in the United States. And for our young people between the ages of 15 and 24, it's the second leading cause of death. We have many people in that dark place. And my only purpose in writing the book was maybe to help one of those people find a way out of the darkness and know that there is hope, know that the... Suicide is a permanent solution to a temporary problem. Mm, mm, well said. Uh, how I hate to ask that. It's not a very nice question, but how close were you to... I mean, at, at one point, did you actually select a time and a place? <laughs> uh, I'm laughing because that is a very difficult... Uh, uh, mostly I was um, debating the method. Hmm. How do, I do, how do I do it and how do I check out and not create problems for other people around me? And what's the best way to do it? And I was researching um, solutions. I mean, researching options there, not solutions. Researching options there to, uh, to do it. Um, I was very close because in the end, I separated from my wife and the children. And that was another nail in the coffin, if you will. To have another difficult expression, but um, it, it made it very, very bad. I was very close. I was very, very close uh, to doing it. I know this is a, a dumb question, but uh, are you glad you didn't, and are you glad that your life is what it is now? Yes. So let me tell you what, what's happened since then. I started over, and I created a whole new life. I have had um, 45 years of a new life. Uh, and, and the first part, the first 30 years are but a memory now. They're nothing more. 
they're almost not even related. But but the last 45 years, I have created a wonderful, wonderful life. I have a wonderful life now. I participate, and I show this in the book. I participated in an organized family reunions and family reunions that brought the whole family together for three days of uh, joy and fun. I have uh, every um, December 24th, I have what we call GPJ brunch, Grandpa Joe brunch, and I take my granddaughters to brunch, mm. and uh, and we go shopping, but they get what they want for Christmas. Rather than Grandpa buying them some stupid gift, they get what they want. Uh, uh, all I can tell you is this joy. I see um, the joy in the world, and yes, there's still tragedy, but it's not overwhelming and dominating my thoughts. Um, I can balance it out with the beautiful things in life. Let's talk, if you will, talk about the therapy of writing a book. Did you grow in writing, or was it all there, you just had to put it down? Oh, no, I grew in writing. I grew in writing it, and it was very therapeutic, very um, um, almost coming to closure with some issues. And then, as I told you, there were new issues that came up as I was writing it. It took four years. In the middle of writing the book, my daughter died. My oldest daughter died. And so so for your friend who said, you don't understand, I do understand. And, uh, and I had to deal with that. And so I couldn't move forward with the book until I could deal with the death of my daughter. And I had to write about it. So the minute I could sit down and write about the death of my daughter, then I could move forward and finish the book. So I learned not to let those tragedies hold me back anymore, not to let those life-changing events, and we all experience life-changing events. It's not just a veterans. Uh, we all do. So to not let them hold us back and to be able to find a way forward is, is, the, is the main core hope that we uh, want people to get from this book, no matter what your issue is. We're talking with Joe Whitaker, who wrote the book, The Day Before I Died, and dealing with life after being a veteran in, in Vietnam. And uh, Joe, let's uh, let's try to do this. Uh, let's take a phone call. You okay with that? Yes. Now, I'm, uh, as you know, I'm driving in the car, and I'm heading into a mountainous region. So if I lose you, I'll call you right back. Okay. All right. Uh, let's go. Uh, by the way, if you want to call 673 you want to have a conversation with Joe and talk about some of the things that he's talked about. Uh, I believe we have Seth. Seth, are you there? I am. Um, I'm a Vietnam-era veteran, and um, this is probably the most significant program that's been on your show. And thank you, Andy, for allowing the veterans to get some information about this. And I would be glad to do a program with you about my experiences also. I just want to make one comment. Most veterans that I know do not know the extent of their benefits or the extent of their disabilities. I was up in Oregon on a vacation. A man in a uh, Vietnam hat came over to me and he said, your ears are ringing. Is that right? I said, yes. He said, you're deaf. You've lost your, your hearing. And he went on and he said, I see one disability on top of another. You must come back to St. George, find the appropriate person to file disability claims. In uh, Rick McMullen, I don't know if he's still doing it, 
comes from the state of Utah, and he fills out the disability forms at job service. In three months, I had $300 per month, and depending upon the disabilities, could be $1,500 a month through the rest of a person's life. Now, let me tell you that 300 or anything in between makes your life a great deal different than it was before. Mm-hmm. So, uh, But he didn't talk to me. He talked to my wife so that she would make sure I did it and followed through. And I have numerous uh, situations where I didn't realize the services, the psychiatric services, the mental services, an entire um, collection of of uh, help that's available to our veterans, and most that I meet don't know they can get hearing aids or drugs or therapy or a thousand other things because they've been denied in the past because they earned too much money or some lame excuse. So this is probably one of the most important uh, subjects and topics that you could ever put on your program. Seth, uh, if you'll hold on a little bit, I do need to get a commercial break in. We lost our guest. Joe, uh, again, he said he was driving through a mountainous area. We probably were going to lose him, and in fact, we did lose him. But if you'll hold on a little bit, I, I have a couple of questions for you, but I do need to get a commercial break in. You okay with that? Yes, sir. Let's uh, sell something. All right. Hold on. Uh, uh, by the way, Joe Shoney is a sponsor of the show. has been for a couple of years now, uh, maybe a longer, a decade. I have no idea because he was on there when I started. I've been doing this two years now, but Joe is a loan consultant. His specialty is customer service. Give him a call today at 435-590-6300. Uh, Joe is one of those loan officers that uh, basically says, you know what, this is your loan. And I'm going to make sure you understand everything about it every step of the way. That's the kind of person you need on your side. It's Joe Shoney. Again, the phone number 435-590-6300. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Andy Griffin Show. Now, if you're a veteran, uh, I think it's worth saying up front here, uh, I cannot relate. I am not a veteran. I never went to war. Uh, I never had the, uh, you know, the, the um, tenseness that comes with where you might get called up or you might be uh, sent to an area that is a hot spot, as they say. So I, I in saying that I understand, that, that wouldn't be the right. I, I understand uh, the service that these people uh, provided. But having had to, fa- people in my life who did serve in wars and knowing what what they went through, it, it makes me at least a little bit empathetic to what uh, our veterans have gone through. And the thing that I feel most uh, uh, strongly about is that our veterans need help. Uh, and, and we had our guest Joe Whitaker on, and he talked a lot about uh, the fact that um, – you're changed. You're, you're fundamentally changed, not only uh, emotionally, but physically, mentally, all the way around. And uh, Seth is with us. Seth, um, will you talk a little bit about how being a veteran changes you? How, uh, you know, t- to me, because I can only talk about it uh, from third person because I, I wasn't there. Uh, I'm, I'm curious how, how it changes you, because like Joe said a minute ago, you come home and everyone else is still the same, but you're not. Exactly, and and you never will be the same because I do believe these experiences are so traumatic 
and such a violent change from everything you've experienced up to that particular point. Nobody that I know of is prepared. And in my case, I was 16 when I joined the military, 16 years old and four months. Now, there's an organization in town called VUMS, V-U-M-S. It's Veterans of Underage Military Service. And uh, you can go to the group and you can be with like-minded people who are, are more or less in your group. Um, who understand some of these things, and although I didn't officially set boots on the ground in Vietnam, I was, uh, my unit at uh, Dugway Proving Grounds, where I was working in chemical, nuke, and biological warfare, were deployed to Vietnam the day I uh, was released from the uh, military, the Army, after three years of service. And so um, the things that happened during that deployment, during that service, altered the course of my life. And uh, um, I, I certainly am not. I go around Walmart and I go around Costco and I look for men with military insignia or hats and I try to explain to them and I do to them what the fellow, he was a VSO, he was a, a veteran service officer. And he was Walmart, and he caught me, and he, he told me that I was disabled and wanted to know why I didn't have disability payments that were owed me. Mm -hmm. And so I've dedicated my life to my wife's chagrin. She won't go to me, go with me to Walmart or Costco or any <laughs> box store because I'm hunting for people who have a military insignia of some sort. It's a great service. And by and large, those people have been denied over and over. They earned too much. They didn't have that this or that. They didn't know the vocabulary. They didn't know what words to say. And if you go to the VA, they're going to sort of discourage you. They're going to give you some kind of psychotropic drug. They're going to pacify you. They're going to give you a tranquilizer or, or uh, some other um, medication and essentially tell you to go away. Yeah. Okay? And so we need people who have been through the system that can give them step-by-step, step, here's what you do, and uh, the VA is like a great big in, uh, insurance company. Now, if you've had experience with insurance company, what's the first thing they do to your claim? Uh, they send it to a claims adjuster, right? No, they deny it. They deny it. <laughs> right? My brother, MBA, uh, he worked for Blue Cross Blue Shield. His job was to figure out how many of these we can deny to lower our costs. Oh, boy. Okay? And, and then, now let's just be realistic. Uh, the more denials the VA can issue, um, 
the, the, the more profitability they, they tend to have, and there are monetary considerations. And so you've got to understand that you're dealing with a huge bureaucracy, and even though you've been damaged in the service to your country in every way imaginable, uh, everyone that, that passes away or is denied and never comes back is is a, a, a less of a burden on the country. So yeah, that's a win for them, right? Yeah, well, we're gonna we're gonna do everything we can to minimize this. And I'm not saying that that there are not good people, good doctors, good nurses, good people who care. But they're in a minority. Most people, when they have a job, they just get up, do the basics, and go home, right? Yeah, yeah. and they were short on time, Seth. Hurry up. Yes, uh, uh, I can talk for three, four hours on this if you'd like to have (laughs) a... We need a, a podcast for program you. instead of uh, Mayor's Thursday and the other kinds of political stuff. <laughs> I'd be happy to do that. And I can tell you that there are people listening right this moment, and it's more about the women than it is the veterans that, that have put up with their behavior because they don't know a way out or have the wherewithal financially to take the steps necessary. What what is we're we're down to the final minute, final seconds actually. What is the the first step they should take then, Seth? The first thing they need to do. Number one, they need to enroll at the VA. Okay. You have to go through a process. It's online. You fill out the paperwork. Once you hold the VA card in your hand, you're admitted to every VA facility in the world. Okay. Well, Step number one. Let's start there. Yeah. And I got to run, Seth. Thank you. You bet. The, the, the book is The Day Before I Died, J.F. or Joe Whitaker. It's on Amazon. He also has a website, J.F. as in Frank, jfwhitaker.com is his website. I encourage you. It's a five-star review book. This is a good book by a good author who dealt with some major demons and never did commit suicide, unlike many of our veterans. So uh, I highly recommend it. The Day Before I Died with Joe Whitaker. Got to go.